people that administer them like DJ's having to now, there's a learning curve involved. Let me know when. Go. All right, just uh, for those that are listening live or uh, recording, we've already prayed. We had a little glitch with the technology, so I'm just going to dig into the lesson. Again, this evening's lesson title is The Difficult Passages, Grace and Works, Part 13. Uh, and I had uh, mentioned already that um, I'm trying to, or I'm having to pull together a fair amount of concepts this evening. And so it's going to require a fair amount of concentration. So just keep that in mind uh, as we press on here. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and review from Tuesday's lesson, starting with this up here in the board, which is really a fundamental fact uh, regarding God and salvation. And I want you to think about this in terms of uh, why not everyone is saved. Uh, up here in the board, God saves, but man resists. And I'm talking about man's flesh, of course. The disciples asked, you know, after that discussion that Jesus had with the rich young ruler uh, and the principle of the, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to follow Jesus, essentially. The disciples said, then who can be saved? Sounds so difficult. And his response really was something that we all need to cling to. With people, this is impossible. In other words, man cannot save himself, but with God, all things are possible. Even the drawing of an individual to God in that sovereign choice that he makes that we've been studying, that is also a grace gift from God. We've learned even things like repentance itself, uh, not just faith, but repentance even is a grace gift from God. In other words, anything that has anything to do with saving man from the depths of his depravity that he was born into to being made alive in Christ has to be by the grace of God. And that was sort of the, the question, the obvious question, and who can be saved? Well, with God, anything's possible. And that's what Jesus responded with in Matthew 19, 25 to 26. The attitude of humility and surrender is hard to come by because the flesh resists such things. In other words, we know that God's desire is to, that all are saved. And we know that His own integrity demands that everyone receive the gospel. And that His own spirit is there to convict every unbeliever even, every human being ever born of the truth of the gospel. But yet the flesh resists such things. So I was thinking about this and reflect with me here. The concept of grace and that has been our subject now for, what, 13 lessons, including this evening. The concept of grace is fundamental not only to the gospel, but to God himself. You have to think that way. God is grace. God is love. Grace is an expression of love. So the concept of grace is fundamental not only to the gospel, but to God himself so you have to elevate your thinking, and this is sort of the difficulty of this evening's message. Uh, you have to elevate your thinking in order to grasp this, at least in some meaningful way. And when you do, and you will, because those who seek find, when you do grasp this, you will begin to realize that the sovereign God of the universe wasn't kidding when he authored 1 Timothy 2.4 up here on the board. 
that he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there's this sort of pursuit of grace uh, into humanity itself that God's base desire is that all men are saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But man has something to do with it. Man's free will can say, no, thank you. So God's desire, 1 Timothy 2.4, when it says God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, it means that God's grace pursues man to the degree that man has to literally say, no, thank you to the gospel. At some point, every believer, every person that ends up in the lake of fire, if you would, separated from God, dying in their sins, has said no thank you to the gospel. And that's what we call in Matthew 13, the blasphemy of the Spirit. Because it's God's, the Holy Spirit's special ministry to convict every human being of the truth of the gospel. That they're a sinner and they need a Savior. That they were born depraved and the only one that can grasp them out of that depravity is God himself. So every person has to say no thank you at some point to the gospel uh, if they end up dying in their sins. Arrogant man either thinks that he doesn't need saving or just as commonly it seems that he can save himself. That's what arrogance says. I don't need saving. God's a hoax or uh, I wasn't born that bad. I'm an okay guy, what do I need to be saved from? Uh, or that since it's not that bad, then they can save themselves. Nonetheless, what the Spirit's been teaching us is that even though God's thoughts and ways are not our ways, that's Isaiah 55, 8, they are absolutely consistent and immutable. The point is that God, as we've been learning, God loves humble creatures. And he graces them out. Go to Proverbs 8.17. Proverbs 8.17. God loves humble creatures. And guess what? He graces them out. Proverbs 8.17, speaking of wisdom, which really is God's domain. Proverbs 8.17 <clears throat> I, Proverbs 8, 17, I, wisdom, love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will what? Find me. Those who diligently seek me will find me. Go to Proverbs eleven twenty seven. Proverbs eleven twenty seven. 27. <clears throat> he who diligently seeks good seeks favor a.k.a. also known as that which is acceptable to God. In other words, all our work on thy will be done, remember. He who diligently seeks good seeks favor, that which is acceptable to God. That's the whole idea of thy will be done that we studied on Sunday and Tuesday. But he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. So you kind of get what you ask for, and that's man's sort of portion in all of this. We've spent a lot of time on the key phrase, uh, on that key phrase that our prototype uttered in the Garden of Gethsemane up here on the board, your will be done. And this came up on Tuesday, and it's a practical point. For God's will to be, quote, done in us, we do something, not just talk about it. 
the Word of God is not shy when it says we're supposed to, we've been predestined to walk, to walk the way God designed us to walk. And so there's a doing involved here. You know, James, I was thinking about James who says, you know, be doers, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Or people that, you know, just yakety, yakety, yak. A lot of lip service, but not a whole lot of doing. Uh, Christians, so-called today's Christians who proclaim to be Christians, do an awful lot of that. And this is what the Spirit's been protecting this congregation from. For God's will to be done in us, we do something, not just talk about it. I was thinking about this simple fact while I was listening to the Spirit's lesson on Tuesday up here in the board, more on your will be done. One of Satan's greatest devices is to get even believers to question the simplicity of actually doing God's will. In other words, look, folks, if you're truly saved, what does the Bible say? You're going to do His will. You've been predestined to walk according to His will. It's that simple. Why do we question things? Honestly, who's getting involved? What part of man is getting involved in that equation? It's certainly not the new creature. One of Satan's greatest devices is to get even believers to question the simplicity of actually doing God's will. He uses what I like to call misdirection. Same thing he did in the garden. It's, a, it's not a novel concept. It's the exact same thing he did in the garden. He uses misdirection, inserting an unholy disrespect for the plainness of walking for his purposes in a way in which believers are created to do. In other words, let me put it this way. Instead of asking the right questions like, gee, now that I'm saved, I wonder what God has in store for me. That would be the right question. But man, under Satan's prompting even, asks bad questions like, I wonder if I'll ever walk according to his kind intention. No, that's a bad question. It's not if, it's how, when, where. Both questions involve walking. However, the first one assumes that which is true, that they will walk. For that's what alive creatures do. Alive creatures get up and walk around. That's what we do, right? Dead creatures don't. That's the analogy that's in the Bible. We're made alive. We walk around. We ambulate. We move. We do things. We're inclined to do them. Why? Because we've been made new, and that's all the new creature wants to do. But that new creature is definitely alive, and when it comes to the spiritual realm, it's walking around in the light. That's what it does. It can actually see where it's going. now. Do you understand? There's a big difference between understanding that and wondering what God's going to do in your life than saying, I wonder if I'll ever walk. But that's what poor theology actually results in. Anxiety, angst, questioning. I remember having question after question with people. Gee, I wonder if I'm actually in the plan of God. I wonder if I'm actually doing His will. I wonder if I'm actually... All these like horrible, weighty concerns... And there's no good in it. 
So both questions, let me get back to the questions here. Both questions involve walking. However, the first one assumes that which is true, that they will walk, for that's what alive creatures do, while the second question assumes maybe they won't walk, as if they were still dead. In Romans 6, 2, Paul says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You're not dead. If you're born again, you're not dead anymore. You're alive, which means you walk. That's what you were predestined to do. Walk into the kind intention of His will. You were purposed to walk. But you see, when you ask the wrong question, like, you know, maybe I won't walk. Will I, will I walk? It leaves the issue of being totally changed at salvation up to man himself, presumably at some later date. And there are a multitude of perversions of theology on this topic. The prior promotes security, thanksgiving, and even excitement. I wonder what God's going to do with me. Security, thanksgiving, and excitement. While the latter promotes insecurity, Misery and depression. Insecurity, misery, and depression. It'll just imagine yourselves right now. Geez, I wonder if I'll ever produce any good fruit. I think I'm saved, but I wonder if I'll ever produce any good fruit. Huh? All because arrogant man takes Satan's bait. Again, the point on the board, one of Satan's greatest devices is to get even believers to question the simplicity of actually doing God's will. He uses misdirection, usually bad questions, inserting an unholy disrespect for the plainness of walking for his purposes in the way in which believers are created to do. Let me just say this to help steer our lessons a bit more. And it really does bring in the issue of humility. If a man is humble, God will help him. If a man is humble, God will help him. This pattern begins at salvation and continues through all, quote, phases of sanctification. The very first spark of humility is understanding that God is sovereign and holy and man is not. This I'm convinced of. The very first spark of humility is understanding that God is sovereign and holy and man is not. Speaking of salvation then, if this last point isn't part of our gospel presentation, then we are missing the anchor to the gospel itself. This is where I believe people depart. If you're missing this point, this very first spark of humility, understanding that God is sovereign and holy, and man is not, then whatever you're presenting as a gospel is a perversion. If that's not part of the equation, explicitly or at least implicitly, then you're missing the gospel. I was just reflecting on this as well. <clears throat> I've concluded that the problem is that nobody wants to discuss God's sovereignty anymore. Does that sound right to you? Think about it. Nobody wants to talk about God's sovereignty anymore. Why? Because it's offensive. Anything that's true, 
and powerful is offensive to man in his flesh. Teshuka, the sin wants to what? Dominate. So along comes the concept of a sovereign God that cannot be dominated. That is very offensive to an arrogant individual. So they won't have the conversation with you. They'll take a free grab bag when it comes to the gospel. You mean I can just get to heaven by this stuff right here? Yeah, just take the bag. But they do not want to have a discussion about God's sovereignty. And the rest of Christianity seems to be okay with it, except little pockets like ours that are fighting tooth and nail for the essence, the very essence of God, that we don't lose sight of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So I've concluded that the problem is that nobody seems to want to discuss God's sovereignty anymore. They'd rather just talk about how he is powerful enough to, you know, snatch them out of the throes of hell or maybe even spiritual death if they're somewhat educated, which is true. Which is true, don't get me wrong. And I, like many of you, keep coming back to this simple point, though. I ponder the likes of Romans 1, which uh, says those who refuse God's sovereignty are without excuse. Why? Because you know why? They do not fear God. In fact, the flesh is more fearful of other flesh, of the things of the world than it is of God. Think about it. Why is, not, why is not this church completely filled? Because most people are more afraid about being a schmuck in the world than they are in the eyes of God. Most people are completely tied to their businesses, their jobs, their this, their that, their families, their kids, their grandkids, whatever, you name it. All these little idols and all these things that they're afraid of losing. But like, gee, you know, what does it cost a man? You're going to forfeit your soul to gain the world? This is, this is the equation we're going with? And, and some false gospels actually sort of pat it and say, go ahead, keep yourself life. Here's a little trick-or-treat bag to heaven. Nobody wants to talk about God's sovereignty anymore. And the problem is, look, if you don't, as a human being, as an individual, understand the sovereignty of God, accept it, and then fear God, this is God, infinitely more powerful and holier than any man. If you're going to fear any one person, it's God. But nobody wants to have that conversation. Nobody fears God anymore. If your gospel presentation doesn't include some fear of God, it's missing the very strength of the argument for the gospel. Let me repeat it. If your gospel presentation doesn't include some form, shape, explanation, implicitly the fear of God, it's missing the very strength of the argument for the gospel. Because let's face it, folks, who's the one who sends people to the lake of fire? God does. We're going to get to that passage here shortly. Things like 
just to put that in context now, things like repentance, by grace through faith, salvation, they are functions. Do you understand? They are derivatives. They are absolute functions of the fear of God. Why would you ever be motivated to repent if you don't fear God? What would you be afraid of? Jesus taught vehemently on this very subject concerning his own gospel. Go to Luke 12, 4. I'm going to show you this. If there's no fear of God, and I'm not firing brimstone in it. That's not our church. You know that. But here's the thing. I'm not doing the opposite either. I'm not going to leave this out. Because this is part of God's grace. Part of God's grace is telling you, showing you up front, you should fear me. Because I'm the God of the universe. You can see me in nature, even, so says Romans 1. So you're without excuse. Look at Luke 12, 4. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more than they can do. In other words, don't be afraid of man. But I will warn you, whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. If that's not part of your gospel, something is missing. It was certainly part of Jesus' gospel, was it not? Some theologians have dubbed Jesus a judgment preacher even. Why? Because he wasn't afraid. He's like, look, my dad is all-powerful. My dad is sovereign. You are not. So unless you orient to this little paradigm right here, that my father is sovereign and you are not, you're not even going to want to hear the rest of the gospel. You're not going to think it's even necessary. Do you understand? Until you realize that God is all-powerful and sovereign, you're not going to fear him. But nobody wants to talk about that anymore. Up here on the board. True humility. If a person is able to stand in front of God and not be humbled by his sovereignty, that person does not fear God the way they should. They are arrogant. The antithesis of humble. That person is without excuse. A la Romans 1.20. If a person is able to stand in front of God and not be humbled by his sovereignty, that person does not fear God the way they should. They are arrogant. The antithesis of humble, that person is without excuse. More practically stated, and this came up on Tuesday as well, there are those who think they are, let's call it able, quote, able, because they do not fear God. Whatever the problem is, doesn't matter. Let's, let's get a little bit more generic here. Just, you know, I'm my own man. I'm a self-made man. I've done well for myself. You know, I'm rich, so I don't think I have need. Sounds like Revelation 3, right? We saw that as well. I'm rich. I'm worthy. 
by man's standards, I don't have need. I got a successful business. I got a successful life. I got a successful family. I'm a successful this. I'm blah, blah, blah. What do I need God for? I'm actually a pretty okay guy. So says everyone else. So they have this sort of sense of ability. That's man's flesh. So there are those who think that they are, quote, able because they do not fear God. And there are those who know they aren't able. So they are, let's say this, and this is a play on words on purpose, they are avail-able. Avail-able. Let me sort of net this out for you. Able versus available. Only God can make us able, for He is able to do so. You might as well just net that out and say only God is able. We can only avail ourselves to His sovereign will. Therefore, we are avail-able. Available. Humility is tantamount to availability. This is how grace works. You know that little, I gave you the net-net. You know, I want to, but I know I'm not able. That was like the rawest form of humility. I really do understand that I'm depraved and I need a Savior, but I don't know how to, I'm not going to do this. So God says, perfect, here. Here's repentance, here's faith that saves you, you're good to go. That person was just not able, they were available, which is a totally different stance. I mean, what else can man be other than fundamentally available for blessings by grace? We certainly don't bless ourselves out. We certainly can't manufacture faith. I mean, how much has the Spirit drilled that into our heads? We certainly can't build a tower of Babel to heaven. We certainly can't drag God down to us. We must be reconciled to a perfect, sovereign, righteous, just God. So we just say, okay, how do I do that? How's this going to work then? <laughs> I can't do it. I'm not able. That's the difference between a humble person and an arrogant person who thinks they're able. I'll give you the etymology for the word available. A means amount or mount. Veil means to be of use or value. Able means be able. A plus veil plus able, available, equals able to amount to be of use or value. Able to amount to be of use or value. So just think about that for a second. Since the only way a person is ever of use or value to God is by grace, up here on the board, from our previous point, Humility is tantamount to availability. The best thing you can do is be available. The only way you'll ever be able to be of use is by God's grace. And God gives grace to who? The humble. So the very best you can be is be available. You're not able, you're available. In essence, our job then is to remain available to all that God desires to do for us. And now here's where we ended up at that point of contemplation over the past few lessons, particularly concerning the idea of subtracting from salvation. This is sort of a 
aha for some people, as I've heard. This idea of subtracting from salvation. Everybody wants to pick on the Pharisees or the local denominations that are legalistic. But what about the people who subtract from salvation? There is absolutely a thing. Subtracting from salvation. Because man doesn't want all of God's grace. Sounds bizarre, but not when you know the flesh. So particularly concerned the idea of subtracting from salvation, or maybe even more generally speaking, subtracting from grace, since they are, in this sense, one and the same thing. Consider this again. Abel versus available. God's good work always results in a return on on investment, an ROI. To continue with that analogy, he, quote, opens a brand new investment account when he saves someone. It's not an improvement. It's a brand new account. That new account will have a return. It's not if. It's will. Luke 19, 12 to 27, that's the parable of the miners. What did he say to the guy who buried the jar in the back and didn't even put it in the bank? Take that away from him. Take it away from him. The person who is unsaved loses everything. That's the theology behind that. Again, that new account will have a return, though it may vary. Matthew 13, 8, that's about fruit. That's the parable of the soils. Fruit, it may vary, but only believers bear fruit. A person who does not bear any ROI, a person who never bears any fruit, in other words, represents an unsaved person in both parables. That's what Jesus was describing. (laughs) I give you all the grace in the world, and you blow it. Some of you tried to kill me. That's Luke 19. We sow seed on a variety of soils, but only some of them create fruit. And only believers are represented as those that bear fruit. In other words, only believers will have a return on investment for God. Why? Because it's His account. He opened the account on your behalf. One last thought from Tuesday's lesson up here on the board, more on able to trust. True faith puts trust in another person. I think this is how we closed on Tuesday. True faith puts trust in another person. Counterfeit faith doesn't. A perfect example is in marriage. Hence, all the divorces we see. And I'm not picking on anyone that's been divorced. But this certainly is a key element of divorce. Most people who say, quote, I do, don't really mean it. Because they don't trust the other person. They are merely hedging bets. Isn't that what Hollywood promotes to the nines? Well, let's just roll the dice. (laughs) Nope, that didn't work. 
Hope you had a prenup. Let's roll the dice again. Let's make a mockery of marriage, because that's what Jesus wants. Right? Let's make a mockery of marriage. What's the problem? Why all these marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce? Why? Because people don't even trust each other. That's the great analogy. But this isn't a lesson on marriage and divorce. Why do you think the Bible is wrought with examples of adultery even? Why do you think that is? It's because the analogy is a perfect fit. People who don't truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will adulterate. It's a matter of trust. Whether you have faith in His plan for your life, or not. If you have that faith, then you just stick with them. And you say, this is my husband. If you don't, if you don't trust that person the way you ought to, then you're off gallivanting around. Adulterating, that's the analogy in the Bible. It's the same thing that goes on in human marriages. Why? Partially because people don't trust each other. So consider yourselves, even as believers, the nature of your struggles in the faith. I mean, what do you struggle with? Ask yourself that right now. What do you struggle with when it comes to faith? Honestly, what do you struggle with? I mean, I think of Frank, you know, lucky to be alive. I mean, sure, he's, his back's been up against the wall a few times, right? What, ha- what do you struggle with if you're struggling? What the Spirit's saying to all of us is that the reason we struggle is an issue of faith and therefore trust. And if we trace the issue, now listen, if we trace the issue backwards, in other words, we want to get to the root cause. Why, why, why? why don't we have faith? Why don't we have that faith? Why, why can't we just be, you know, have ultimate fidelity towards our Lord? Never mind our marriages. What about towards the Lord? Why can't we have ultimate fidelity towards the Lord? Why don't we have the perfect faith like Jesus did? Well, let's get to the bottom of this. If we trace the issue backwards, what we find is not the thing that unleashes grace, which is humility, but just the opposite, arrogance. So plainly stated, if we have trust issues with the Lord, it's because we are arrogant. I may take some of you a little time to chew on, but that's the reason. If you have trust issues with the Lord, it's because you're arrogant. Because trust issues really an issue of faith. And God gives faith to who? The humble. But he's opposed to who? The proud, the arrogant. So guess what? If you're arrogant, you don't get the faith that allows you to maintain a nice, healthy form of fidelity. That's the point. And the analogy is on the board. It's the same thing. Able to trust. True faith puts trust in another person. Counterfeit faith doesn't. A perfect example is in marriage, hence all the divorces we see. Most people who say, I do, don't really mean it because they don't trust the other person. They are merely hedging bets. With that said, let's press on in our curriculum. The major point under development right now has been up here on the board. 
this idea of two gospel perversions. People talk about adding to salvation. Everybody understands, oh, it's definitely not faith plus works. That's an abomination, pointing to legalism. But how often does anyone talk about the other gospel perversion? The flip side, subtracting from God, uh, from salvation, which means, excuse me, faith minus God's works, whatever that even looks like, <clears throat> minus God's works equals salvation. In other words, something less. God supposedly does something less. Pointing to religions that actually subtract some of God's grace and saving man. And we know from Scripture, Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Therefore, to net that out and make it even more simply stated, this other gospel perversion, the one people don't really talk about that much, subtracting this theology, subtracting from salvation, supposes that God actually does less than he does when he saves a person. Now, here's the kicker. You ready? <clears throat> the, this is how smart Satan is. Satan says, okay, here's the theology. This is the perversion. God's actually, quote-unquote, going to do less, and that's grace. Huh? He's actually going to do less, and that's grace. Because you see, in that system of thinking, grace equals accommodation to man. In other words, let's make this as easy as possible for man. He doesn't have to consider anything. He doesn't have to count the cost. He doesn't have to understand himself as depraved. He doesn't have to understand the sovereignty of God. He doesn't have to understand the situation that he was born in. He doesn't have to understand any of that stuff. Oh, that's grace, though. No, it's not. That's a perversion. Somehow the word grace got perverted into accommodating. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that grace equals accommodation to man. What man deems easy does not mean that that's God's grace. Okay? Have you ever suffered? Have you ever suffered undeservedly? Okay, let's suppose that you have. Okay, who put you under that suffering? God did. For what reason? To grow you. Would you say that was grace? Yes. Did you like it? No. Was it accommodating to your flesh? Absolutely not. Could you despise it? Absolutely, probably so. So you see, grace is not always accommodating to man. That's the lie. So you don't get to just pluck out the so-called difficult parts of the, the gospel that says, hey, listen, man, you know, I'm Lord and Savior. You know, you were born depraved. This, this, this whole idea of salvation is moving from death to life. Um, there's a lot more to this. My grace is going to do an awful lot for a humble person. But my grace is not accommodating to man. My grace isn't, quote, easy. I say that on eggshells. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Easy in the sense, from man's perspective, that somehow anything that makes man's life easier, including squeezing through the narrow gate, is somehow dubbed grace in this perverted gospel. That, my friends, is a very slippery, satanic lie. Do you see how smart he is? 
All he has to do is subvert God's grace, say grace is really accommodating to man. Anything that makes it easier for man to be saved, that's grace. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Show me that in the Bible. I'll show you a Lord whose gospel it's named after. Says, no way, that's the way of my father. No way. You show me that scripture, I'll teach it. But it's not there, my friends. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And that is probably, outside of legalism, the most popular perversion of the gospel itself. Subtract from the gospel. Make it accommodating to man. Call grace accommodation. Let's make those interchangeable. So man never has to consider anything to do with the sovereignty of God, hence the start of our class. Man does never have to consider the fact that God is sovereign and holy and they are born totally depraved. Oh, that conversation turns people off. No kidding. Ask Jesus about that. Who said, bye-bye. See you later. You don't want me? Then you don't want my Father's salvation. You see, that's what I see when I look at these kinds of perversions. I know there's some of you still going, I don't get it. Why is he so fired up? I don't get it. I don't have this problem. Well, then maybe I'm the only person with this problem. But I can tell you this. God has me teaching this stuff for a reason. And I'm telling you right now, Satan despises this church, hates this man, hates all of you who are moving forward. Hates it. Because we're uncovering something. Do you understand? Something long hidden. Something sort of tucked away into the crevices that was palatable to, to most men, most Christians even. We're going, no, let's pick up this rock. What's under this rock? Oh my God! Literally. Oh! Yeah, a bucket full of lies. A big old pit for people to fall into. That's the other gospel perversion. It may not be in your face. It may not be overt. It's covert. Satan is brilliant. That's all I can tell you. If anything, I would even argue in some ways Satan likes the whole legalistic thing because it's like, you know, fireworks. Oh, yeah, everybody, what happens? The fireworks are going on right now. Everybody's head's going to turn, right? And if Satan were in here, he'd slither around. He'd say, keep looking at the fireworks. Right? Keep looking at the big show. Keep looking at the overt distractions. While I'm over here just slithering around, cleaning house. Why do you think I wrote a book called Covert Arrogance? It's because covert arrogance aligns perfectly with this thing. Perfectly with this thing. Sad to say, half of you probably even haven't even read it. I'm not going to look at you, but that's grotesque at this juncture from a shepherd's perspective. The other gospel perversion, this theology, subtracting from salvation, supposes that God actually does less than he does when he saves a person. If we carry this out beyond just soteriology, even, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation, we rightly conclude this up here on the board. 
Perversion means unrighteousness. Anytime we misappropriate Holy Scripture, it is no longer holy. And in fact, we have taken something perfect and perverted it. Since God's Word is perfect, this perversion is not. And here we go. You ready? That's just the gospel. Add or subtract to the gospel, it is now perverted. Okay, now any derivative, every doctrine, every doctrine is on top of, except maybe for the essence of God, is on top of the gospel. In other words, blooms from the gospel seed. So any derivative of such a perversion is also no longer righteous. Think about that. Expanding upon this, we get up here on the board. God will never pervert His own word. There's only one way that verbal plenary Scripture fits, quote-unquote, and that is His way. Any rearrangement of Scripture immediately leaves the effort up to man. Hence, it is a work of man. This work often begins with subtracting from the gospel and completes with the consummation of a perverted theology. That's what the Spirit's saying. I don't have enough time. Frankly, I may not have enough wit to teach you what the Spirit's telling you you need to ponder on your own time. You need to look at what you understand about the gospel and what you understand about your own theology and where they don't fit together. What maybe you've been clinging to for years or decades even for some of you that doesn't actually fit with the real gospel. That maybe some of the things you've thrown out over the past few years make total sense now, now that you realize what the real gospel is, why they didn't make sense anymore, and why the Spirit chose to pluck them out of your little portfolio. We kind of came in Backwards, you see, we backed into the gospel. Now what he's saying is, understand now that you've got the gospel, what do you see when you propagate out? What do you see? What perversions do you see in your own theology? These types of perversions begin by hijacking God's gracious work at salvation perverting the very concept of what it means to be saved. What it means to be saved. A gospel that subtracts from God's gracious work at salvation is a fleshly perversion. And I tried to help you out with this as well on Sunday. The flesh merely, quote, on hold. By subtracting from God's plan for salvation, Satan has managed to propagate a perverted gospel where, quote, believers are saved from the penalty of sin, but nothing practical. In other words, the entire conversation is just a gavel or something forensic or judicial. But we know that salvation is much more than that. The penalty we know is what? The lake of fire. But if we don't realize it by now, we never realize it. The issue of salvation has really very little to do with the destination, heaven or hell. 
It has to do with being born spiritually dead, inanimate, dead, and then being made alive in Christ Jesus. That's much more than a gavel coming down or you rattling off doctrines as a result or that are included in the so-called gavel coming down. It supposes that man later decides for himself, as if he has the right, on the issue of the sovereignty of sin. If this were true, God didn't really save them from sin itself. Up here on the board. Today, perverted gospels is not only one. Present grace as accommodating to man. This is what I tried to explain earlier. Grace does not equal accommodation. To man, just because it's easier for man's flesh does not mean it's grace. (laughs) I mean, because God's grace runs contrary to man's flesh. So if anything, it's going to be what for man's flesh? Difficult. Which is why he resists grace. Today's perverted gospels, there's not only one, present grace as accommodating to man. Throw that out. Really, throw that out. That's probably the biggest element of this evening's message. Throw out that little, quaint, little, nice, tidy little definition that some of you have. Grace is not equal. In math terms, right? Is not equal to accommodation or accommodating man. Those are not the same things. God's grace, nowhere in the Bible does, does God... Grace ever portrayed as accommodating man. God says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. It's my grace, I'm going to give it the way I want to. I'm going to choose who I want to choose, how I want to choose them. I'm going to change them the way I want to change them. And they're going to bear fruit the way I want them to bear fruit. Because I predestined the whole thing. And man, you stop trying to muck around here. And redefine my base terms of the essence of me. (laughs) That's Satan for you. Merchandising. All over again. Today's perverted gospels present grace as accommodating the man. While the true gospel of Jesus Christ is designed obviously to save him, it is not designed to accommodate him. Rather, it is designed to accommodate the righteousness of God. And here's where we ended on Sunday, and we're almost out of time again. Actually, go to, uh, go to 1 John 1.5. We'll go there first. <clears throat> 1 John 1.5. I mean, think about it. Anything, God's grace is offensive to the flesh. So if the flesh gets involved in any way, shape, or form in the gospel, what's it going to do with grace? Push it out. Throw it out. Because grace is fundamentally offensive to the flesh. So every chance it gets, it's going to want to push it out. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Sound like Ephesians 10, 2.10 up here on the board? It should. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would what? 
Walk in them. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. That's the difference between an unbeliever and a believer right there. And that's John's foray into this wonderful epistle that has been mucked over and dragged through the mud by perversion after perversion after perversion after perversion. Why? Because perverted gospels need a place to sort of camp out. A couple of verses down, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Verse 9. It's gotten so bad that people think that chapter 1 is about spiritual maturity or something like that. Or being filled with the Spirit or something like that. Something along those lines. And that's a lie. John's saying, listen, you don't have the light. You don't have Him. If you're still walking in darkness, you lie. You're a liar. And who's the father of lies? Satan. You're a liar. It's not that hard, folks. Matter of fact, the Bible is actually, as the Spirit's been trying to say, it's actually really easy. Once you have the gospel nailed, the rest of the scripture is easy to read. You're no longer confused. I used to be confused out of my gourd reading 1 John 1, especially. Confused out of my gourd. Why? Because nothing fit. And my soul was abrazed by it. And I, it just, I kept going back to it. And I'd leave it. I'd go back to it. And I'd leave it. I'd go back to it. And I'd say, what is the problem? The problem was I didn't actually understand the gospel to the degree that actually made this very simple. Very simple. That was the problem. God is not a God of what? Confusion. A God of what? Peace. Now I have peace in my soul. I read 1 John, the whole of it, I have tremendous peace. I understand exactly what this beloved apostle was fighting. And by the way, he was fighting Gnostics. Not a whole lot of like we fight right now. The same people who pervert the gospel by mucking with grace are intellectuals. They have to be. You know why? Because their theology becomes so tangled and so complicated, you have to be an intellectual just to read it. <laughs> that sounds like what Jesus wanted for us. For us? No, we're dumb sheep. <laughs> right? I'm serious. If you have to be a Ph.D. in theology to understand the gospel and then the spiritual life, something's wrong with that theology. And you really kind of had to be just to understand 1 John 1 if you muck with the gospel. I'm out of time here and my voice is just about blown. Let me put, I'll, I'll end with this. Think of it this way, another big picture. And I told you you'd have to concentrate because a lot of moving parts. But uh, when God chooses to save us, we must understand all that He has chosen to do for us. If He says He's going to save us, we have to understand what He does. That implies what the problem statement was. It's all connected. And notice, once again, that God's choices are often very different than man's up here on the board. I'll leave you with this. Man's attempt at sovereignty, it's good that we're coming full circle with sovereignty because we opened up with sovereignty. 
and the simple fact that most people don't want to have the discussion about God's sovereignty anymore. Man's attempt at sovereignty. Man does not have the right to dictate how God chooses to save him. Nor does he have the right to dictate the boundaries of God's grace in doing so. God is sovereign. God chooses. Man doesn't have any of these rights. We cannot dictate and say, well, I said this here prayer, or I I believe this one thing, or I, I think this, and I think that, and therefore you must save me. No. God chooses. Nor does he have the right to dictate the boundaries of God's grace in doing so. If God says, I'm going to save you, this is what I'm going to do. And the flesh is like, but I don't like that. That implies this, and that implies that. That's right, it does. I'm going to literally change you. But I don't like that. So I'm going to teach a theology that's more accommodating. I'm going to teach a theology that says grace equals accommodation to man, and I'll fill all my seats up. Because I don't have any stones. I mean, my bag, you know, bag of stones, you know. Because I don't have the gumption. Because I don't want to stand up for Jesus Christ. I'm a wimp. That's the average evangelist nowadays. Little wimps peddling what? Self-worth? I got five people saved today. No, better yet, I saved 3,000 at a revival. Who's this about anyways? Yeah, I took a shoehorn and I opened up the gate, the narrow gate, so a bunch of people could run through. What? All I had to do was say that grace means easy and accommodating to man's flesh. Huh? Once I did that, all bets are off. What does a thief do when a robber comes over the side? Comes right over the side. You know why? Because the shepherd, the great shepherd, won't let him through the gate. He says, no, 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 no. My gospel. My rules. My dad's plan. My grace. My spirit. Who's going to convict you of all these things? So, man, you, you cut this out right now. And for all of us, we need to get the gospel right We don't have any rights to change definitions, to make things more accommodating, even for those we love the most in this world. If anything, we're going to damage the the hell out of them. No pun intended. Amen? That's bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask your blessings as we take what we've learned. How to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs us so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.